Today we've, uh, we've built this conference as establishing gospel-driven churches. And in part I'm actually intrigued you're here because uh, do you know what that means to be a gospel-driven church? I'm not sure I do. Uh, I'm going to give you my suggestion on it, but I'm a little bit intrigued as to what you think you are coming to with a gospel-driven church conference. Uh, the phrase is one we've made up. In fact, I don't. Uh, Scott made it up, I think. He gave it the title. I didn't know. He just tells me that's what it's going to be, and I turn up. But gospel-driven church, what is it? Um, now, my guess is you assume that the conference today would be about creating evangelistically orientated churches. Is that right? Is that what you've come for? Gospel-driven church, does that mean, what does that mean? Does that mean that we're going to be seeking how we can create evangelistically minded churches? My guess is that's our assumption. But is that what it means? Gospel-driven, is a gospel-driven church a church that's evangelistically minded? I think, uh, I guess it begs a question, actually, which is, what does the gospel mean? To be a gospel-driven church begs the question that you've already made an assumption about what the gospel means to conclude that a gospel-driven church will look a certain way, yeah? Which actually drives us back to think about what is the gospel. Now, at this point, it's possible to imagine a person just saying, look, I don't care about the phrase, I just want to know about how to get more people in church. Uh, and if that is the case, that would be a problem. That would be a very great problem because we are actually, ought, we ought not actually care about just getting more people in church. We ought not care about just getting more people in church. Now, I'm, um, I'm actually going to run off on a bit of a rave here to get us started. And in my estimation, it's critical. I'm going to try and lay some foundations in this first session and then, um, the second session, Build some, put some bricks onto it and do some concrete stuff about details and practices and so on where we'll be able to bounce it around and throw it together. But I want to lay some foundations. I'm going to go through uh, some thoughts here because in my, my view, we are seeing a bit of a resurgence around the country and I'm sensing that there's a, a renewed energy and vigour to see the church grow again. There's a renewed energy and vigour to see the church grow and I'm seeing leaders more and more concerned to see our churches grow. And I want to say two things about that. I want to say, firstly, a passion for growth amongst churches and church leadership is very, very dangerous. That's where I'm going to go first. A passion for growth amongst church leaders and churches is very, very dangerous. It isn't always obvious but the most dangerous people to church health are actually evangelists and leaders of big growing churches too, just for your interest. Uh, people like me are your most dangerous people. Um, actually, let me rephrase that slightly. The most dangerous people to us and the health of church are probably not just evangelists, but the kind of evangelists whose sympathies are most connected with the sinner. They are our very dangerous people. The ones who feel most keenly the needs of the sinner. Now you're going to hear some, it's going to be interesting engaging together with what we've heard and what you're about to hear. And we're going to, we're going to wrestle with that together. 
The most dangerous people are those who feel most keenly the need of the unconverted and their pain. The most dangerous people are ones who see the difficulties that the church has caused the unconverted. They're your most dangerous people because that sympathy for the sinner will overpower every other concern so that every energy will go into winning them even if it means sacrificing other things like the biblical truths that make it hard to reach non-Christians. Now, these people and our passion for growth opens us up to dangers, the dangers of compromise. It leads churches and ministries to become sinner-driven. Now, we hear in the business world about being consumer-driven and businesses that shift into being consumer-driven actually succeed because they actually care more about selling and growing and developing amongst the consumer and gaining more to win and so on. They focus on them. It's a good thing in the business world. But in the church world, it can be a very bad thing in that it can lead us to seek to win the world's respect for the most noble cause to win them to Christ. And a church is then only one short step away from losing the very thing that makes them the church, the church of God. You see, it's our daily lives that ought to win the respect of outsiders. But we, the gospel preacher, have always been and will always be a stench of death to those who are perishing. And that is because that stench of death is because of the gospel, viewed from one perspective. Because the gospel viewed from one's perspective, or in, in a, its very essence, is a prophetic call to the world to lay down its arms and surrender its rebellion. To actually turn back. You know, one of the, um, perhaps the shortest ways you can express, I've asked, we'll get back to all these other ways, but one of, one of, a short way of expressing the gospel um, in, in Acts chapter 4 is um, uh, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Now, friends, that, that is a fighting statement, isn't it? Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. It's a statement that says there is no other Lord, and if you're actually to come and understand the gospel and find grace in Christ, you actually have to acknowledge that he's Lord, you're not. <laughs> They're fighting words that actually say you are to actually stop turning your back and bow the knee, find forgiveness by the only means given through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace in him, Acts chapter 10. Now, evidence that the gospel, the biblical gospel is in a church, that a gospel, that the church is gospel-driven, evidence of that is repentance and hostility. Repentance and hostility. Let me um, read to you the words of Ian Murray. Has anyone read Evangelicalism Divided? Oh, you ought. I think it's compulsory reading for every evangelist. Um, evangelicalism divided. Let me read to you just a little bit. He says, Whenever the gospel has entered with discriminating power, it has been with disturbance, opposition, and personal reproach for its preachers. He then quotes Luther and says, Those who are in the teaching office should teach with the greatest faithfulness and expect no other remuneration than to be killed by the world, trampled underfoot, 
and despised by their own. Teach purely and faithfully, and in all you do expect not glory, but dishonour and contempt. Not wealth, but poverty, violence, death, and every danger. Now that's just reflecting on Paul in 2 Corinthians, isn't it? Be aware, brothers and sisters, of a very great spiritual danger, the danger of a passion for growth. Because it's hard, it's hard if you've got a passion for growth, it's very hard to see the outrage that the gospel causes the unconverted and not think that that is hindering our growth. And right there you're in danger. You know, um, you start to wonder, have we acted wrongly? Have we said something wrong? Now, there's a complexity here, isn't it? Perhaps we do need to speak more graciously and perhaps we haven't spoke graciously enough and perhaps we've acted in in abrasive. But Christian leaders need to make a firm resolution about whose friendship matters most to them. Is it the world's friendship or our Heavenly Father's? You need to make a firm resolution. I don't know where you're at. If you're in leadership now or going into leadership, you need to make that firm resolution right now. What kind of leadership do we need or want to be the kind the world would respect or the kind that speaks like the prophets of old into a world that's lost its way? Actually, not just lost its way, deliberately turned its back. Will you be the kind of leadership that knows that as you minister the gospel, you will bring hurt to many people? Will you be that kind of leader? And yet know that it will bring life to many. Will you stand for the gospel even when it hinders growth? I think this is fundamental. We cannot be friends with the city and be a gospel-driven church. You've got to make that determination. Do you want to be friends with the city or stand for the gospel? Can't be both. Well, you can for a time but you can't serve two masters. We can love the people of the city who are rebellious sinners, like we were and are. Well, we're not now. We're redeemed and rescued, but we were, and that's our nature. But beware of the leader that aims to be liked or wants to be liked or needs to be liked or wants to be in a position in his church where his church is a friend of the city. Beware of that leadership. Very, very dangerous. If you're ever going to be about growing the church, You must do it from a firm foundation of caring so much about the truth that even if it means no growth, you will stand for the truth. You will declare the truth. You'll be a man and woman of the truth. Because the church is the pillar of truth. It's what we are. To be a gospel-driven church is to be a church committed to holding on to the gospel. Now, this isn't a theoretical principle. It's an every-week church experience for me. Uh, We have people come to our church and people leave our church and they go because of our stand on things. We could have had many, many more people in our church if we'd softened. And the fact is the higher our profile, the larger we grow, the greater the opposition and the grief that comes to the leadership. And the greater the pressure from many people in church to not say that, to say this more, to be that, not that, more and more that comes. You know, it's interesting too the way that people express their opposition. It's always unfair. 
So our claim that Jesus is the only way is always criticised as us being arrogant. When, of course, it's the most humble expression you can make because it's submission to a Lord who says that. But it's always expressed as arrogance and so we are known as the arrogant church. You hate that because it impacts your ability to grow. We are known as the legalistic church. Why? Because we call on people to repent and change and act in certain ways that are in conformity to the will of God and not simply say you can live in license once you've come to Christ. But that's not couched as they're faithful to the scriptures who want to see a serious die to self and live for Christ. It's couched as you're legalists. You see, it's always unfair. Passion for growth is dangerous and being a gospel-driven church means you need to come to terms with the fundamental passion for the gospel and its purity, its sanctity and the negative impact it will have on men. Now let me just engage a little bit with Dave, which I thought is an expression of wonderful spirit. So I've got to tell you, it's, you ask Dave to speak and what does he speak about? Reach the world for Christ. We're going to come back to that in a second. That says something about Dave which you want to capture. But let me just say, um, it's interesting when Paul talks about flexing, um, you know, I become all things to all men, he makes it very clear that he is not free from the law, he is under Christ's law. That's a prior conviction. That's not an afterthought, that's his prior conviction that he has, Romans chapter 6, uh, been redeemed from the law, that he might now be a slave of Christ. That's his prior conviction out of which he now operates with the freedom he exercises. And there is my point, and I'm sure Dave's as well, actually, certainly. Um, passion for growth is dangerous. Got it? But I said I was going to say two things about a passion for growth. Passion for growth is dangerous first. Second, though, it's necessary. It's necessary. If we're to be faithful to Jesus and his word, you have to have a passion for growth. You've got to have it. But boy, it's dangerous. You see? Um, the very gospel itself requires us to be passionate about it. it. Isn't merely The gospel isn't merely a word about God's honour to be delivered whatever the response. The gospel isn't merely a word about God's honour to be delivered, whatever the response. I've, I've just done my bit, delivered the gospel about being God being on an... Oh, that's, not, that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is at its heart the loving movement of God back towards his host, host, hostile world to win it back. That's what the gospel is. It's the loving movement of God towards his hostile world to win it back. The opening of each of the gospels, it's interesting, isn't it? Well, Luke, Matthew, you've got the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Do you remember how it goes? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born. That's the gospel. A saviour has been born who is Christ the Lord. The gospel is good news because it's news of the Lord who is a saviour who will rescue that's why it's good news. Um, the expectation of salvation is built into the gospel. Come with me to 2 Corinthians 4. 
I'll show you a bunch of things here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, have a look at verse 15. For it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now, if there's anything I can do today, it's embed this in your heart and mind, that the intention of God reflected by the Apostle Paul, is that he is glorified, God is glorified, as thanksgiving increases for grace extending to more and more people. The glory of God is not just seen in the faithful declaration of the gospel to no end. The glory of God is seen in more and more people receiving the grace of God, which causes thanksgiving to overflow to his glory. There's an expectation for growth, that grace may extend to more and more people. There's an expectation of growth. Passion for growth is dangerous, but a passion for numerical growth is part of the fabric of the gospel and part of the fabric of the New Testament. And it's impossible to avoid it, even though Paul was a Calvinist. And I think he was. It's interesting, 1 Corinthians um, uh, 9 and 10, uh, which Dave so helpfully expounded for us, the, um, I do everything uh, that I might see some saved, comes after having talked about in 1 Corinthians 3, of course, that God is the one who gives the growth. So you've got the fundamental principle of the sovereignty of God in salvation. He's the one who gives the growth. And yet Paul's the one who does everything by all possible means to save some. Now, what do you call that? What do you call that? It's a word for it. Compatibilism, isn't it? It's the fact that the sovereign God works through means. 100% God through the 100% effort as God works in us to exercise the pursuit of growth. Now, all of this is meant to suggested these this is what we're going to be talking about today is more than a mere discussion of techniques to grow the church it actually goes into the dna to be a gospel driven church is to actually go into the very dna of what we are as christian leaders and what our churches are to be it's not just about technique method and so on as dave said um, and let me just suggest I, I think two things there and some of us need one side more than the other that's the complication in talking to a group of people uh, it it's often the case that the young amongst us, me and you, need, need to hear one side more than the other, and that is we need the challenge that, that if you are gospel-driven, you won't be popular. And when you're younger, I think you need to hear that more. You need to hear that a gospel-driven church will be one that isn't popular and ought not aim to be cool. Now, you are blessed if you're Presbyterian or Reformed because you've already worked that one out, that you can't possibly be cool. and it's <laughs> So you've already, you've already decided that the gospel isn't cool and you've committed yourself to it. Isn't that right? So I, I like praise God for Reformed churches. And um, 
And I do think, actually, we ought to send all young people interested in ministry into the Reformed Church and the Presbyterian Church too. But there you go. It's one of the, <laughs> one of the great blessings that we, we have. Now, but I would encourage you to pray uh, if you're thinking of going into ministry and you're operating in leadership in church. Can I urge you to pray that you would, that you would actually make it a practice of prayer regularly that you would resist throughout your life and ministry the seductive call to pursue respect in the secular world. It is seductive. It'll sneak up on you. I've been a gospel minister for 20 years now. Um, I I play sport with a bunch of non-Christians every week and often get asked, what do you do? And every time it still happens to me, if I tell them I'm a minister, what will they think of me? You know, if I said to them I was an engineer running a massive project, they'd think I was really awesome and I'd get respect. But if I say I'm a minister, I know what they're going to think and... See the seductive thing? And so you start to think, how can I make my job sound sexy and impressive? Oh, right, it'll happen to you. I know you're as bad as I am. Beware the seductive call and pray that throughout your life and ministry you will stand against it by the strength of God. Drink deep, deeply of the biblical picture of the suffering servant of Jesus. Yeah. Be alert constantly. And let me just say too, the solution to this isn't the catchy phrase... Um, our message never changes, but our techniques might. That's not the solution. That yeah, we, we keep the message the same, but our methods change. Is not the solution because our methods are our message. You, you, you can't avoid that the way you package and present is part of the communication event. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 to 4, them, actually all the way through, most particularly is saying something about the Corinthians have rejected Paul the messenger because of the package that he came in, you see. And it's because they hadn't understood the gospel that they hadn't understood the package. The method and the message are so entwined, it's, very, it's impossible just to have that catchy little watch our message, not the two are so bound up. You need a far more, I, th- I think we need to be girded far more profoundly in an instinct that refuses to let, respectability or coolness or making ourselves attractive as the thing that drives us. You need to actually guard against that, that you can make better, wiser decisions about what to change and know that they're not motivated from the wrong things, you see. But I would say amongst us, it's perhaps the older amongst us, the more established amongst us who need the second truth, that a gospel-driven church will be deeply concerned to be like Christ and so seek to save the lost. That is what we are to be about and to be grieving. To those of you who are in ministry and been in it a long time in churches, you ought to grieve that you've not seen a convert in many years. We have churches across the land where that is the case. Grieve that you've not seen a convert. Can I, um, can I just uh, bounce this a little bit further with you and um, come with me? Come with me to Luke 24 for a second. Let's see if we can do that. As I say, I want to build the foundations and then we'll go through some details. But Luke 24. You get this, um, 
this is one of the final commissionings, if you like, of Jesus. You get through each gospel, a sense of the commission of Jesus. And uh, in Luke 24, um, he says, verse 45, uh, verse 46, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And I want you to notice this really... It is written that the Christ should suffer, must suffer on the third day. There's a divine necessity about the suffering of Christ and his resurrection. As Jesus repeatedly says through the Gospels, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the sheep and be crucified and so on on the third day rise. There's a divine necessity about that event, yes? What can be often missed is that verse 47, there's a divine necessity about that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. There's a divine necessity about that, that the gospel goes forth. And on the back of that, you come into Luke's second work, uh, come into the book of Acts, and of course, Acts chapter 1, you get that wonderful expression, verse 8, of receiving power from the Holy Spirit, that you might be my witnesses to the ends of the earth by the divine necessity of Christ. But come with me to chapter 2, verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. See how Luke reports? The numbers converted. You come with me to verse 47 of the same chapter. Praising God and having faith with all the people, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. A concern about numbers. You come with me to chapter 5, verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, concern about numerical growth. You come to chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so on, chapter 11, verse 24, chapter 16, verse 5, all of it summarized as the word increasing and multiplying. And what I want to suggest to you, it's striking the focus in the book of Acts on the actual numerical growth of the work of the gospel. Now, in our day, when I mention that typically in some contexts, what I hear immediately is that we ought not to be about numbers. It's about the honour of God in telling the gospel. It doesn't matter the response. That is not the shape of the New Testament. It's not the shape of the New Testament. And it makes no sense, actually, that we ought not be interested in numbers. Can you imagine, um, can you imagine arriving at... You, you're the captain of a rescue vessel that arrives at a sunken uh, um, asylum seeker's boat with uh, hundreds of people in the water. Can you imagine arriving and... Um, and insisting that everyone's aware that we don't care about numbers. Wouldn't that be an odd thing? Especially if you were one in the water. <laughs> I want you to be cared about caring about numbers. Now, not caring about numbers because you're concerned about the reputation of the boat and how many we got versus how many they got. Not caring about numbers like that. Not so that it's kind of giving some kudos to you because of how many you've got. But I wouldn't be content to just faithfully turn up I'd be focused on numbers. 
because each number is a person. Paul was driven by a desire to see numbers saved and not just be faithful. Be faithful, but not just be faithful, you see. Passion for growth is dangerous, but you can't hold to the gospel and not be passionate about growth. So we learn to live with the danger, with each other. Um, And what it is to be a gospel-driven church, I'm going to suggest to you, is it's to hold to the gospel and hold out the gospel. It's to hold to the gospel and hold out. So to come to a gospel-driven conference is really to be about how do we hold to the gospel and hold out the gospel. In fact, I want to suggest to you today that being a gospel-driven church is actually at the centre and heart of what it is to be the church. This topic that we're looking at today isn't about finding out how to add an extra dimension onto your church life that you're losing. It is, in fact, about getting a church to be what it is meant to be at its core. See, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, isn't just another statement of Jesus's. It's his last words which sum up his whole mission, which sum up the whole meta-narrative of the Bible, which is reflected all the way through the gospel, the, the book of Acts and into the epistles, that we are to be about making disciples. That's our business. And uh, I, I'd warmly commend to you that book by Kevin DeYoung. I saw it on the floor just there, so it's reminded me of it. Kevin DeYoung's book, um, What is the Mission of the Church? If you've not read it, I would warmly commend it to you. I think it's a very, very helpful uh, exposition of the scriptures about these issues because the core of who we are as Christians, as leaders, as communities of Christ is to be focused centrally on making disciples. It's not to be focused centrally on whatever your vision is for the church. It's to be focused centrally on making disciples who may do many other things. Feed the poor, care about social structures and justice, love my neighbour in all kinds of ways, but the centre of my love for my neighbour is to be about seeing them made to be a disciple. That's the centre of our work. That is to hold on to the gospel and hold out the gospel to make people come to know Christ and be a disciple of Christ and deepen them in the gospel by making them deeper as a disciple. Do you see how it works? Those things are what we are to be centrally about. And I, I, I make that little rave because we, will in, we always kind of pick up the latest. There'll be theological movements happening around the place and there's another theological movement which we need to be alert to, which is coming, which will be challenging these very core convictions. And to actually have thought through carefully is important for us as leaders. So a gospel-driven church will be centred on maturing believers and gaining more believers, making disciples. Now, the key to this. The key to this is the gospel itself in three ways. Because the gospel gives us security, it gives us vision, and it gives us power. Let me take you through each of those and then we'll pause and see if there's questions, yeah? It gives us security. The essence of the gospel is that we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his merits, by the substitutionary atonement work of Jesus, standing in our place under the wrath of God, 
living the life we ought to have lived, dying the death we deserve to die, that you and I, by faith alone, not works, through grace alone, might be reconciled to God, adopted and made his sons and daughters. That's the essence of the gospel, that it's his work on our behalf, not ours. That conviction is critical for our churches. It's critical for us in leadership. It's critical for us in making ourselves gospel-driven. Why? Because I'll tell you one, well, many reasons, but I'll give you one. It gives the context for us to be secure in seeing where we're at. You know, um, I was captured 20 years ago, 25 years ago, by the vision of the Bible for the glory of God to cover the earth as the water covers the sea. I was captured by that vision, by that extraordinary picture in Revelation of the multitudes gathered around the throne from every nation, captured by Captured by Ephesians 1, and the, um, that, that all things would be summed up in Christ. This very compelling and exciting vision of God reconciling the world to himself, yeah? I've spent the last 25 years of my life asking, why aren't we seeing more than we are seeing? And then I've been pressed to ask another question, which is, not only why aren't we seeing more, but are we the reason why we're not seeing more? Are Christian leaders contributing to the problem? Now, I say contributing very carefully because clearly we're not the problem because there's a spiritual battle going on and the God of this world is blinding the minds of unbelievers. That's clearly the case. But are we contributing? Well, we need the gospel security in our own hearts and lives to give us the context to actually ask that question about ourselves. And I found it so releasing to know that my ministry is not founded... my value and worth before God is not founded on the success of my ministry. So I can actually ask the hard questions and look at myself honestly and say, am I, am I a problem here? Am I a blockage? Because I don't need my success for my status before God. That's established by the gospel. So I can go, I can, I can hear the hard word, I can take the hard look, and I can, you need that too, friends. Because it won't be, you won't, possibly ever fix up anything that you are contributing if you haven't got the honesty to see what it is that you are contributing. Until you see where you're at with the problem, you won't actually be in a place to fix it. So the gospel is critical for us to reach the world because it enables us to be honest about where we're at and not be destroyed by it. You got it? I want us to do that together. Second thing, the gospel's critical because of the vision it gives us. It keeps our eye fixed larger. One of the dangers for Christian leadership is that your vision's shaped by the building you're in. Um, we have men and women sitting in churches of 70 and 80 people in buildings that are full, largely content with their work while around them, within 20 minutes' drive, are 30,000 people going to hell. Um, And they're sitting in buildings worth $4 million, ministering to 80 people, and living with what has been called satisfactory underperformance. Satisfactory underperformance. It's underperformance. We're reaching 80 people out of 30,000. 
That is underperforming trends. But it's satisfactory because we can still pay the bills and our building's full. In business, when you underperform, because business is driven by finance, by money, if you don't make money, you don't succeed. When businesses underperform, they haven't got the money, they go out. But when churches underperform, because we rely on just the devoted giving of a number of people, once you get 50 people in a church and have been there a while, you can't kill them. You know what I mean? The church will never die. It, it, well, it will take decades before it's slow. But you can't, that church will just keep giving enough money just to keep it going satisfactorily so you can exist. Now, if you live with a vision set by what your building shapes for you, you won't think much louder. You won't live with discontentedness about what's happening. Whereas if you let the gospel lift your vision to the fields that are right for the harvest, the 30,000 within 20 minutes of you, you will not be content with the 70 or 80 people. And it's crucial, I think, to get church on mission and it's crucial to get church on mission by you being on mission as a leader. Now, here's the beauty of Dave. You give Dave, give us a, open the scriptures for us. What does he talk about? He talks about the slavery to seeing the lost one. And if we'd let him go, he would have raved longer. Isn't that right? There's the heartbeat of someone who's on mission. The spiritual thing that we need to get is your church won't be clearer than you are. It won't be more focused about these things than you are. That's a biblical principle and I want to suggest a sociological principle, which means that if we don't get our heads into the movement of the Bible and the nature of the gospel and the scale that operates on the realities of heaven and hell, the lostness of people around us and the numbers that are there, if we don't see the magnitude and think bigger, our congregations won't get it. So it comes down to us. Now, I've found so helpful the 10% vision. Um, it's given me a concrete measure. Now, 10%, of course, is pathetic. I, um, I, asked, uh, our, I do this regularly. So I, I have these little um, raves that I have in church. And so I had one some time ago. Now, on this one, I said, because um, I'm trying to envisage them all the time, I said to them, um, uh, just imagine there's a disease broken out in a country in Africa. I mean, AIDS, perhaps. Every single person in the country is dying, um, expected to die by 25. Imagine someone had the cure. How much, how, what percentage of that country would you want to hear was cured before you felt the aid workers who'd gone in there were breaking the back of the problem? Now, what percentage do you think you'd like to hear? Give it to me. 90 would be good. What would make you think they were breaking the back of it? 75? 50? 40? Yep. 2%? That's the Australian converted population in evangelical churches. 10%? If you'd heard that they got to 10%, would that make you think they're breaking the back of it? They've really made... 10% would be pathetic. Now, if we in Geelong were to aim for 10% of, what, 150,000 people live in Geelong? 120? 220. 10% of 220 is? You don't know. 22,000, yeah? 
22,000 people just to get to 10% would be converted in Geelong. How many are in churches in Geelong? Any church? 6,000? 7,000? That's in any church. Every church added together. Now, I dare say it's probably less than that. But that means just to get to 10%, you need to see another 20, well, another 18,000 people converted. 18,000. How many churches does that mean you need just to get to 10%? How big do those churches need to be? Do you see suddenly the scale that we're looking at just to reach 10%? And we are living in context where we've got 80 people in a church building that's full. Until you, until you get some sense of this is not good enough, you will not fuel a movement in your church to make any difference. It just won't happen. Now, you pray for it, you want God to make it happen, but it'll happen, it'll happen through you catching it to infect. Absolutely critical. Now, getting the gospel is the key because the gospel is the thing that will give us the security to ask the hard questions about our ministries. Getting the gospel gives you the vision to see what it is we're to pursue. And getting the gospel is the key because it's not technique, pragmatic, or the latest book that will reach the country. It's the gospel. It's the gospel word. Now, we're going to talk about leadership skills in the next session, but I want to make it absolutely clear that the thing that makes Christianity irresistible and compelling is that a group of people have got the gospel, really got it, and are gospeling. You know, the apostles, the Jews, lived under the, under the weight of a holy God and their unrighteousness, and they realized without righteousness they couldn't stand before this God. They live with this burden of the law. And you get this sense throughout the book of Acts that, remember Acts 13, um, uh, Paul is it, he says, um, uh, you, can be, you can be forgiven from everything you could not be forgiven of under the Mosaic law. Acts 13, verse 38, somewhere there. There's this sense of final. And that rung through the new Christian community that was this sense of release and joy and the power of forgiveness that was infectious. You know, I, I think this is basic to us. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm, not in, I'm not an incredibly amazing leader at all. I'm just a fairly ordinary guy. And... And I wasn't school captain, I wasn't the captain of the debating team, I wasn't anything like that. Except that what I have had by the grace of God is a deep conviction about the wonder of Jesus and the need the world has of him. God's gripped my heart. And that has compelled me to speak and, and drive and push and cajole and get angry and get frustrated and that, by God's grace, has been used to impact people around me to get it as well. And I am deeply concerned about how few pastors I see with that energy and passion. Deeply concerned. You know, um, this could, of course, fit well just in simple leadership pragmatics. The principle of leadership is you need a vision. Everyone's talking about the need for vision. And uh, we're drawn to people who have vision so you could go, awesome, well, the gospel, that's my vision, that'll make people follow from me, I'll get a vision and it's clear and it's the gospel. No, 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 no. You don't get the vision because it serves growth. You get the vision because it is the true vision, which will serve growth. 
See how you've got to get it right way around? You've got to get it because it's to be God. It is what is. And when you do get it, God will use it. But don't get it so that you get used by it. Now, there's the foundations. Actually, it's the roof and the walls and the furnishings, but there's, there it is. I'm, um, everything we talk about next session will trade on that. 